It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, July 9, 2020. On today's episode, we have an episode of Book Talking with Janine West and Maria Morales. They will be speaking about the book American Dirt and some of the controversy around the book. Then author Ariella Friedman is here to discuss her second novel, A Joy to be Hidden, which is the 2019 finalist of the Quebec Writers' Federation Prize for Fiction. And finally, we have Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. Again, to start the show, here is Janine West and Maria Morales. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's presentation. My name is Janine West, the director of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. And I'm joined here today by Maria Morales, one of our librarians. So a couple of weeks ago, many of you tuned in to listen to Jennifer Eisman's um, present uh, program uh, called You've Got to Read This. And during this program, she recommended a book called American Dirt. The author was Janine Cummins. Now, she, one of the things that she talked about was the controversy surrounding its publication, mainly that the author had been accused of cultural appropriation. So I also read American Dirt, and although I have to admit I did not think that the writing was particularly stellar, I rather enjoyed the story. However, um, and just as an aside, my, both my daughters and I decided we would discuss this book, and so I prepared by reading the reviews, and I actually was quite shocked to hear about the controversy surrounding this book. Uh, for those of you who don't don't know the plot, I'm going to give you a very, very short summary. So the novel tells the fictional story of a Mexican mother and her son's journey to the American border after a cartel murders the rest of her family, the, her entire family, in fact. Um, the author is not Mexican, she's American, and she is white. This was an Oprah pick. Uh, and the book was lauded as the next Grapes of Wrath. There was a lot of uh, push behind this book. However, just as the book was becoming, uh, coming out, the author was accused of cultural appropriation. She had to cancel all of her book tours and she was vilified in the media. So the big question surrounding this issue is this. Who has the right to tell one story? And I thought the whole issue of cultural appropriation in literature was an interesting one and it would make for a great discussion. And so I invited my colleague, Maria Morales, to discuss it with me. So we're going to do our best. Um, on the one side are those who argue that only writers from a marginalized background should, should tell the stories about people who share their cultural histories. While on the other side are those who say that this amounts to censorship. So let's start with a definition. What is cultural appropriation? Cultural appropriation is the adoption of elements of a minority culture by members of the dominant culture. So, Maria, welcome. So, I'm going to ask you the first question here. Okay, uh, first of all, Janine, I'm going to say good afternoon to everyone. 
I'm very happy to be having this conversation with you, and I hope it will be an interesting topic for everyone listening to it. I hope so too, Maria. So here we go. So budding novelists have traditionally been encouraged to write what they know. And if you write what you know, you will be able to write a great book. So do you think that this is good advice? Do you think authors should only write what they know? Well, I don't, uh, it, it's a difficult topic. Cultural appropriation is a very difficult topic to discuss. But if we uh, think that literature is an imaginative art to suggest that the writer cannot depict characters unlike themselves is absurd because books would have to be people with characters exactly like the author. The author. So I see no reasons why writers should assume that any territory is theirs by inheritance. The key point is that uh, they should be able to write about whatever they want to write as long as they do it responsibly and with respect towards the culture that they are borrowing from. That's a good, th those are really, really good points, Maria. And maybe I could add that um, perhaps at the beginning of their writing careers, if they are very, very sort of young and inexperienced writers, perhaps it's not such a bad idea to start with writing with what you know. And as you perhaps gain experience that maybe you can um, move on to um, sort of expand your universe. The other thing I want to just sort of add is that it does sound absolutely absurd to sort of say that if you're not, a, if you're a woman, that it's not okay to write a book from a man's perspective. If you're straight, that it's not okay to write a book from a LGBTQ perspective. Are we saying that a writer of color can never have um, as its main protagonist a, a white person? Are we actually saying that a white person can never write um, from the point of view of a person of color? And I think you make an excellent point that it's really about writing uh, respectfully. I, I think that's a, a really, really good point. And Janine, just uh, uh, talking about the same thing, what do you think about the publishing industry? Is it favoring white writers over other ethnicities? What, what do you think? What you know is what, I actually think probably it does. You know, you know, the publishing industry is a huge, huge industry, particularly big in the United States. If you are a mainstream writer, most likely you're writing um, with uh, one of the major publishing houses such as Random House or, or Doubleday. Um, these are big publishing industries and I do think that they tend to favor mainstream writers, which for the most part tend to be uh, white writers. The difficulty is, I think, is that if you are a writer um, who are perhaps uh, from a different, uh, different nationality, a different country, you're writing in a different language, it is particularly different, uh, difficult, I should say, 
um, for a major publishing house that is centered in the United States to pick up your book. Your book has to do super, super well in its home country and for it to be picked up um, by an American publishing house and it, for it to be translated. Um, I think that if you're talking just about the sort of the United States, um, let's face it, uh, publishers are in the business of selling books. They want to make money. They tend to go with mainstream writers that they know. Uh, yeah. They certainly tend to go with safer topics that they're more comfortable with. Um, yes, and, and only 6% of the books uh, in the market are translations. So you yeah, so it's, I sort of, um, I sort of get it. I see that there is a responsibility, but there is more of a responsibility to make sure that the writers that they are publishing, perhaps um, when they do have minority characters, when they do uh, address uh, issues of race, perhaps to ensure that they are, that the author is doing that in a very, very respectful and a very uh, empathetic manner. I think that's really their responsibility. But we do understand uh, that the, the big machine behind the big publishing houses in the United States is huge. I mean, if I just think of uh, Janine Cummings' book, it was heralded as the next Grapes of Wrath. Um, this is the marketing machine was certainly behind this book and perhaps they were um, maybe a tone deaf to the sort of underlying uh, cultural appropriation issues that lay behind it. Um, yeah, yeah that's, my, that's my thought on, on that. Um, so one of the things uh, we could also talk about is uh, what do you think? Do you think that this current campaign against cultural appropriation will actually end up having a negative impact uh, on fiction? Well, it could, certainly, because uh, then there, there is no going to be a, um, a reflection of society. In the, in the books that we read. And the characters in literature would be exact replicas of the author um, because of the politically correct audiences that have such amount of power over writers. And so there is a self-censorship, which is even worse than the other type of censorship. And um, it, will be, it will be sad because we will be losing um, the mirror that fiction is of society. So if they were barred from creating characters with attributes that they do not own, um, the stories are going to be kind of repetitive always, like clones of the author. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. It's almost as if like the, the novelist is caught in a contradiction. Um, sort of involving demands that, um, that are almost absolutely impossible to resolve. So on the one hand, um, they're accused of why there are no characters of color in their fiction. 
Why isn't their fiction representative of uh, contemporary society? But on the other hand, they're saying like, how dare you? How dare you as a white writer appropriate the lives and stories of people of color who you know nothing about? So this is really kind of like a no-win situation. And um, would, you, would you be able to comment of authors that have been accused of cultural appropriation and why? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I have a couple of examples here. Um, one of the very, very first authors to be accused of cultural appropriation was actually William Styron. William Styron, if you remember, is the author of Sophie's Choice. So he, he endured severe criticism and was actually denounced as a racist when he published the Confessions of Nat Turner in 1967. Now this novel, which is told in the first person, is based on the true events of the slave rebellion led by African-American preacher in Virginia in 1831, Nat Turner. It won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in the year that it was published. Um, another great example is um, of a, a white person who was writing uh, as a uh, black person is the case of Catherine Stock, Stockett, who, if you remember, wrote yes. the in 2009, another Oprah pick, interestingly enough. Now, this book spent 100 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and it is based on the lives of Black female maids in America's southern states in the 1960s. And the, the book is written in the voices of two Black women and is set in Jackson, Mississippi during racial segregation and the Ku Klux Klan lynchings. In the afterword to her novel, Stockett admitted that she was really scared uh, that she was crossing a terrible line when she was um, writing this book, and that fear was definitely well-founded. Despite initially being hailed as the most important book to, uh, since To Kill a Mockingbird, if you can imagine, the book and the subsequent film have been widely condemned by critics academics and commentators, alleging that the novel trivializes, misrepresents, and stereotypes Black women, Black men, and the Black community. Yes, I remember that uh, uh, it was all over the news that the American Association of Black Women Historians said that uh, the Black women lives were uh, removed of historical accuracy just for the sake of entertainment. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I, I find it, and I also find it interesting that, um, anyways, I, I, I do find it interesting that this book also was, a, was an Oprah pick, and it was a best-selling book, and a lot of people read it. Um, I did actually see the movie. Um, I think when I read it in 2009, I didn't really think too much about cultural appropriation in, in those terms, uh, but I do remember the controversy. Another interesting book that I wanted to mention, uh, because it's, it's a bit different uh, in that the author certainly worried about being accused of cultural appropriation, but she wasn't. 
So uh, this is the author, Thriti Umrigar, and um, she's a fairly well-known writer. I think this was probably one, um, you know, I think she's written maybe 10 to 15 novels um, in total. But one of her more recent novel, novels was one called Everybody's Son. And although she generally uh, populates her books with Indian um, characters and really focuses more on the Indian experience, in this particular book, she decided to tackle uh, race relations in America. And her protagonist was a black character. She really, really worried about how this book was going to be received and whether as an immigrant from India, that she could actually uh, tackle this topic. She does an awful lot of research and she really tries to write uh, very honest and authentic uh, books. But um, as a writer, she said like, if people can write about aliens and people can write about all sorts of things, um, why shouldn't I be able to write about this? Because this is a topic that interests me. Uh, but what is interesting is that she was not accused of cultural appropriation. Despite her fears, the book was very, very well received. So perhaps this has something to do this, with the fact that she herself is not white. Um, so does not maybe face the same kind of scrutiny that mainstream white authors might face. Just, just an interesting point. Yes, absolutely. Yes, because then um, writing fiction from outside uh, one's own Median community is a fine line to walk. Right. Exactly. You, yeah. So it affects the final, the the end results or what it reaches our hand. So authors should do a lot of research, cultural consultation, be very. Um, self-aware of what they are writing. Right. So going back to one of our uh, earlier points that we were making, so we were talking about um, the negative impact that uh, cultural appropriation could have uh, on fiction. And it was, I find it interesting what one author, Jonathan Franzen, um, you remember he wrote the corrections, he claimed that he was not going to write about race because he had very limited firsthand experience. Um, do you think that this is an acceptable position for a writer? Um, and do you think that he is um, perhaps afraid of um, writing or uh, afraid of being accused of uh, cultural appropriation in the same way that other writers uh, have been accused. I think that many authors, many writers are afraid of being accused of cultural appropriation. There was um, a Latino writer, um, the name is uh, Charlton Trujillo, and the novel's title is When We Was Fierce. Well, because of the title, not even people did not even read the story. Just because of the title, they thought that he was appropriating a black teen voice. 
And based on the title alone came a lot of criticisms and the publishers decided to withdraw the contract. So going back to your question, I would not be surprised if the author, Franzen, is afraid of being accused of cultural appropriation in the same way as other writers have been. If his point of view is widely accepted, then we wouldn't have most of Graham Greene's wonderful novels, many of which are set in what for the author were foreign countries and cultures. So that was the end of the story. So it's quite negative. The fear, the fear perhaps is justified that white uh, novelists perhaps are more um, able to accept the lesser charge of staying in their safety zone rather than being accused of getting it badly wrong because to get it badly wrong is to um, or to be even accused or even hinted at culturally appropriating a uh, minority culture is that you can spend your years uh, writing a particular novel and just before publication the publisher could actually pull it because they are fearful. So not only are um, authors perhaps afraid and want to stay in the safety zone, but also publishers as well will uh, pull books that they think cross lines because they're also afraid of, get, uh, afraid of getting into trouble. Yes, it's very sad, I think. No, I agree with you. And this sort of leads to a sort of a final question, perhaps. Yes. That is cultural appropriation, is it actually bad for literature? So it's almost twisting the argument on its head and looking at it, what are the positive elements of cultural appropriation? And we have to say that cultural appropriation done well. So it's not cultural, as you were saying, Maria, it's not cultural appropriation done poorly. One has to make sure that one stays away from cliches, from stereotypes, um, and you have to sort of be as accurate, you have to do your research, you have to be sensitive and empathetic in your portrayal of your- um, Exactly, characters. and search your sources and exactly. try to speak with people from the community you are writing about. Exactly. So that be sure that um, you are really writing about, you are not writing about somebody else, but that your character in your story, it's one more. It's, it's somebody that belongs to another group but you as the reader wouldn't even notice because it is well-written, well-researched. Exactly. And I want to make sort of one final point on that is that, you know, like it or not, um, when mainstream writers represent diverse characters, so when they have different characters from diverse backgrounds in their work, they can reach a much wider audience and they actually can do good by changing all sorts of misconceptions. Exactly. It's really important for authors to be able to reach these mainstream audiences 
Otherwise, all their ideas are kind of consigned to what one could call like an echo chamber, where nobody ever, ever hears anything. It's great that a mainstream writer can not only um, sort of cultural appropriate different groups, but that they can, again, if, make sure that it's done in a sensitive and well-researched way but you can also do benefit. You can educate um, and sensitize audiences to a lot of experiences that are not their own. Exactly. You can educate society about all sorts of important issues of the day in a way that is far more accessible than perhaps uh, you know reading academic works or um, it just gives you a different way of understanding different communities. So and just, just because of what you said and what I said before, I think that the words of Chris Cleed are very good on, on, on that uh, particular um, line. That he says that a good novelist is a good observer and everything else is just a style. A writer, he says, must be alive to what goes said and unsaid in the world, making themselves small until only the reader is reflected in the work. A well-crafted novel is a mirror. And as a reader, we should uh, require that the reflection is fair. What do you think? Summarizes well, eh? Yes, and I think that pretty much says it all. Um, I think that plenty of wisdom has been dispensed, not just on the matter of who can tell other people's stories, but I think it, what is important uh, to conclude that it's not about just who can tell them, it's about how it should be done sensitively, and without stereotypes and without presumption. Root your narrative in truth and check your facts. So on that note, I wanna thank Maria for talking with me this afternoon and um, helping to shed light on this very, very important topic. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, our discussion and I look forward to uh, talking to you again. Well, thank you, Janine. And um, yes, um, it was a very interesting topic. And I would say that in the Hispanic literature, there are lots of examples of uh, writers that are good writers, but unfortunately have the tendency to stereotype uh, some characters. I will just be fast and mention a couple of, of uh, examples. One would be The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende. She really stereotypes um, the Japanese American culture and, um, and, and, and uh, people through the main character in the story and also through the other protagonist, Alma. And then just to be fast, I will add also another title, a news from Paraguay by Lilitak, that uh, she never went to Paraguay and she wrote about a period in the, in, in the 1854 uh, end of, uh, of that century. And it uh, touches a lot about the area I come from, 
uh, about um, the war of um, uh, Paraguay against Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. And if she, she did uh, one awards for that book, she wrote, she wrote it in an interesting way, I would say, except that the characters are really flat. And you keep reading and you are trying to think, well, they will come alive, especially the two main characters, they will come alive at some point. Uh, being so important, both of them historically, and it doesn't happen. The Paraguayan characters were mainly stereotypes that never became real people. Duck's novel and its depiction of, it, the, of the dictator Francisco Solano Lopez, and up to a certain point of the, um, his uh, mistress, Eliza Lynch, stirred a contentious public debate. In an interview, the author said that if she would have known all the issues that were, as, that were at stake, she wouldn't have written the novel at all. In this case, it seems that the appropriator was not aware of the deep significance of those historical characters in the culture she was partaking in. So that's it. We could keep on talking about this and never end. <laughs> we certainly could, Maria. Thank you. We, I've really, really enjoyed uh, this afternoon. So uh, thank you again, and I look forward to doing uh, something with you uh, in the near future. Thank okay. you. Thank, thank you, everybody, you. for listening. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ariella Friedman, and I'm the author of two novels. The first is called Arabic for Beginners, and it came out in 2017 with Linda Leith Press. It was shortlisted for the Quebec Writers Federation First Novel Prize, and it won the Mona Elaine Edelman Prize for Fiction, um, which is given out by the Jewish Public Library. I'm going to talk about my second novel today. It's called A Joy to Be Hidden, and in 2019, it was a finalist for the Quebec Writers Federation Fiction Prize. It's the story of a young woman named Alice Stein. She's a graduate student living in the East Village in the late 1990s. She loses her father and her grandmother in a single year, and she's given the task of cleaning out her grandmother's Brooklyn apartment. In the process of doing so, she starts to unlock a family secret. Accompanied by a precocious downstairs neighbor, a 12-year-old girl named Persephone, she sets out on a kind of a quest to understand her family and herself. In the process, she discovers lost children and buried love affairs, a village in Hungary and an artist's loft in Harlem, histories she wants to believe and people she can't trust. It's a little bit of a buildings roman or a coming of age story. Uh, it's also this sort of a detective story or it's not a conventional detective story but it's a story about looking for something and looking for something in order to unlock the secret of who you are and one of the places that this book came from was a conversation that I had um, with a friend my friend was writing a book about New York and she wanted to talk to me about it because we had spent time in New York together um, we'd both lived there in the late 90s, which is the period in which my novel was set. And we'd both 
been there at really formative periods in our lives, in our early 20s. Um, and we both had very, very vivid memories of that time period. Um, scientists sometimes talk about a memory bump between the age of about 20 and 25, where everything is just so potent and so real because you're experiencing it all for the first time. And when I was between 20 and 25, I lived in New York City and it changed my life. As I was talking to her about her New York book, I thought, I want to write a New York book and I want to write a New York book because I want to live there in my imagination again. I could access it all as if it was frozen in amber. There was so much detail that I could recover as I entered into the process of recollection. I wanted to write a novel. This is by no means a memoir, and I'm always really explicit about that because the character in this book does a lot of reckless and illegal things that I myself might consider, but would never actually have the guts to accomplish. Um, But what is very real to me in this book is a sense of a place and time and a sense of a place and time that I lived and that I wanted to do justice to as best as I could. It's a little strange to talk about a New York book right now in a time when New York is suffering and changing once again. And um, I have a friend who's reading this for the first time. And when he wrote to me about the book, he said, your New York is bringing back um, my New York. He lived in New York in the 70s. And it's also making me think a lot about New York as a city. Cities have their own characters. And both of my books are city books. Arabic for Beginners is a book that is as much about Jerusalem as it is about any of its protagonists. And A Joy to be Hidden is all about the frustrating, dirty romance of New York, which I had hoped to capture um, in a period before the city changed, um, which in this book is the period of 9-11. So I'm going to just read a little bit um, from my book about New York City before I talk more about the content of the book. Uh, This is from A Joy to be Hidden. Though it made no sense at all, I lived that period with a preemptive sense of nostalgia. Soon, after all, it would become the past. It seemed perverse to be nostalgic for the present, not only because I inhabited it, but also because everyone else was busy being nostalgic for the storied years of the 70s and 80s, for the city on fire. When I first arrived in New York, it was already beginning to lose its edge to become safer, more comfortable. The East Village was changing because of people like me, writers and artists and students living east of Third and taking their first baby steps into Alphabet City. The week I moved in, I was welcomed by an anti-gentrification march down the street. It was not aimed at me directly, but it might as well have been. But it turns out I was right to feel like there was something precious and vanishing about that time. For all that New York had already changed, it was about to change much more. We thought that history was over and that liberal democracy would last forever. Giuliani was mayor and the Twin Towers still stood. In retrospect, it was a golden period, 
albeit a late decadent fin de siècle fool's gold, a false sense of freedom. The internet existed. I had a dial-up connection, an AOL account, and there were rumors that the library was digitizing its catalog. But we were not yet all ensnared in the net that would grow so fast and so big that it would tangle us all before we had a chance to think about it, nor in the web of surveillance that would follow the fall of the towers, our fall. In graduate school in the 90s, it was fashionable to believe, not in reality, but only in the real, the scare marks enclosing what could not truly be named. Still, that was the last time in my life that truly felt real, and I don't think anything else has been entirely real since. I felt so much back then in the first years of my 20s, before the false apocalypse of Y2K and the true disaster of 9-11, before the billionaire mayor and the disnification of Times Square, before the East Village was Little Japan and back when Hell's Kitchen still deserved the name for its combination of butchery and vice. In the last years of the century, in the last years of the millennium, at the end of the empire, in the first years of my 20s, in the last months of her life. So that final sentence in the last months of her life um, refers to the character's grandmother. And when the novel opens, Alice Stein is going through her Brooklyn apartment and uh, she's cleaning out the apartment after her grandmother had died. The title of the novel is from a quote by Donald Winnicott that I had really early on in the process of writing the book. And it was very important to me in shaping the story and in my own understanding of both of Alice's story and the stories of the different characters in the book. The quote is, it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. And what I found so compelling about that quote was that idea that there are two different things that we want from other people. We want to be seen by them, but we also want to protect ourselves from them. Um, We want to conceal ourselves from them, but we also want the intimacy of being known. Alice doesn't know very much about her grandmother, and when she goes through her apartment, she ends up finding things which indicate a much richer story than anything that she has encountered. And the arc of the novel is partly the arc of Alice getting to learn more about her grandmother, Helen's story. One strange thing that happened over the course of um, writing and editing this novel is I ended up having the experience of uh, cleaning out um, an apartment after the death of a family member. I'd never done that before, and when I wrote the book, I was imagining it. I wasn't describing something I'd experienced. I have the sentence at the beginning of the book about the lesson um, that it is to clean out an apartment after the death of an owner, and I write, it is a stoic exercise. Nothing else will convince you as quickly of the futility of stuff the absurdity of the accumulation of objects and the vanity of ownership because almost everything in that house was trash. So what I wanted to show Alice in the process of encountering is this whole archive of a life that um, isn't meaningful to anybody anymore. 
except when she encounters this uh, jewel, this precious object. And the preciousness is um, literal. She finds a ring and a purse at the back of the closet, along with a hidden stash of gold coins and um, a photograph and a certificate that indicates that her grandmother had spent some time in Bellevue. So she really finds all of these different elements of treasure or elements of discovery which aren't just valuable in themselves they're really valuable as a way of getting to know her family and ultimately as a way of getting to learn things that she doesn't understand about her own personal history I have her find these objects in a closet and my character Alice, uh, she's a little bit related to Alice in Wonderland. She's got some of that same intrepid curiosity. I was thinking a lot as I wrote the book about stories of journeying girls and stories of discovery, which have to do with them going on a trip that is a little bit of a riddle and where the end point is not always clear. So my Alice, um, my Alice doesn't go through a looking glass. Um, she goes into a closet. And when she comes out of that closet, something about her has changed and something about the direction of her life has changed. And the course of the book explores the consequences of those changes uh, that begin when she starts to uncover the details of her grandmother's story and of her grandmother's life. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that she has a, a strange partner in this quest. Um, so Alice is living in a building in the East Village, and below her is a girl, a girl who's sort of on the cusp between um, girlhood and becoming a teenager um, and then becoming a woman. And that girl's name is Persephone. She's named after the underworld story of uh, the girl who is kidnapped by Hades and who is mourned by her mother so much that in the end, the compromise that her mother, uh, Ceres the Earth, struck with her kidnapper Hades the king of hell was that she would spend half the year above the ground and half the year underground with Hades and uh, for the Greeks this is the origin story of the seasons that when Ceres has her daughter Persephone she just flowers and um, the sun shines and the world blooms but when Persephone goes underground and is with Hades then it is winter. When I was writing the story of my Perry or my Persephone I was also thinking about this poem by Evan Boland called The Pomegranate and I'm going to mention it now because Evan Boland the great Irish poet she died last week, and this poem was one of the things which helped me think about the ways that old stories uh, form new stories, which is one of the central preoccupations of my novel. So I'm actually now not going to read from my novel. I'm going to read a little bit of Evan Boland's poem, The Pomegranate. The only legend I have ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. 
Love and blackmail are the gist of it. Ceres and Persephone, the names. And the best thing about the legend is I can enter it anywhere and have. As a child in exile in a city of fogs and strange consonants, I read it first, and at first I was an exiled child in the crackling dusk of the underworld. The stars blighted. Later, I walked out in a summer twilight, searching for my daughter at bedtime. When she came running, I was ready to make any bargain to keep her. I carried her back past white beams and wasps and honey-scented budlias, but I was serious then, and I knew winter was in store for every leaf on every tree on that road, was unescapable for each one we passed, and for me. It is winter, and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see, my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncut fruit, the pomegranate, how did I forget it? She could have come home and been safe and ended the story and all our heartbroken searching, but she reached out a hand and plucked a pomegranate. She put out her hand and pulled down the French sound for apple and the noise of stone and the proof that even in the place of death at the heart of legend, in the midst of rocks full of unshed tears, ready to be diamonds by the time the story was told a child can be hungry. I could warn her. There's still a chance. The rain is cold. The road is flint-colored. The suburb has cars and cable television. The veiled stars are above ground. It is another world. But what else can a mother give her daughter but such beautiful rifts in time? If I defer the grief, I will diminish the gift. The legend will be hers as well as mine. She will enter it as I have. She will wake up. She will hold the papery flesh skin in her hand and to her lips. I will say nothing. So that is the end of even Bowen's um, beautiful poem, uh, The Pomegranate. And my hope in writing this book is um, to do justice to an inheritor of um, her Persephone as well, and to do justice to the idea of a beautiful rift in time and the ways that stories repeat. So in my book, the characters are repeating stories that uh, were written long before they came into existence. They were written by their mothers and by their grandmothers, and they are involved in the repetition of those stories, even when they don't know what those stories contain. And one of the things that I decided over the course of this book was I was going to give Alice some answers to her quest, but not the answers that she expects and not all of the answers that she's looking for because there is always an element of uncertainty in our search for origin stories. There are things that we learn and things that we know and there are things that we never get to unfold. Um, I'm, I'll end by saying that this is a time when all of our plots have been disrupted. We don't know the end of the story that we're living right now. I've found books a really soothing companion in all of this uncertainty, and I hope that stories can bring you some comfort 
and meaning during this period of suspension. Uh, and I wish everybody happy reading and um, a happy ending. Thank you. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hmm. We can't do all of these little shop songs without doing this one. I can't wait to have everyone in the room again so that we can do, you know, the, all the harmony and all the two parts. But for now, let's do it anyway. Lift up your head, wash off your mascara. Here, take my Kleenex, wipe that lipstick Show me your face, clean as the morning. I know things were bad, but now they're okay. Suddenly, Seymour is standing beside you. You don't need no makeup, don't have to pretend. I suddenly see.
Only me beside you, still you're not alone. No one is alone, truly, no one is alone. Sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood, others may deceive you. You decide what's good, you decide alone, but no one is alone. People make mistakes, fathers, mothers, people make mistakes, holding to their own, thinking they're alone. Honor their mistakes, everybody makes what another's terrible mistakes. Witches can be right, giants can be good. You decide what's right, you decide what's good. Just remember, someone is on your side, someone else is not. While we're seeing your side, maybe Road may 
I always have to do the Hill Street Blues joke whenever I do that. Um, so I don't know if all of you remember, but two weeks ago, there was this couple, I was going through the comments, and there was a couple on a virtual date. Do you remember this? I, I couldn't see all of the comments because, you know, I'm always playing, but there was the funniest thing going on. There was this couple who were doing like a long distance virtual date, and they kept asking for this, and they asked for the song, honestly, 10 times, the song called My Secret Love from Calamity Jane. And I feel awful that I missed it because they asked for it seriously 10 times. And I, I, I wonder what happened to them. I wonder what happened with the date. I think it's so sweet that they chose to have their date with Broadway happy hour. You know what I mean? That's just wild. So if you're watching tonight, the those young lovebirds, um, <laughs> this song is for two weeks later. I don't know what happened, but this is a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And what's really interesting, so Doris Day made this song really famous. And Doris Day is, you know, a huge LGBTQ plus icon. And um, when this came out, uh, the, when the song came out and the movie came out, it really became a song for, I guess, gay people at the time who were not able to live out and proud, you know, like we are able to today. Um, it was it was really, really well known as uh, a song where they could refer to their secret loves. Thank God we don't have to live secret loves anymore. But uh, have a listen, you'll hear the lyrics. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And of course, Doris Day sings it so beautifully. And it goes like this. And it's from Calamity Jane. Once I had a secret love That lived within the heart of me All too soon my secret love Became impatient to be free So I told a friendly star The way that dreamers often do just how wonderful you are And why I'm so in love with you Now I shouted from the highest hills Even told the golden daffodils At last my heart's an open door And my secret love's no secret Some
songs with sort of somewhat similar messages. All right, so we're not gonna go out like that. We're gonna go out on some super fun stuff. I hope I've got some wicked fans in the house because <laughs> this is how we're gonna go out. And I, I keep telling Marty, I really need to get some props. I need like a witch's hat. So if anyone can find me of one of those pointy witch's hats, I'd love to find one. For my props for wicked. But whenever we go to Oz, we always gotta do this first. <coughs> follow the yellow brick road, follow the yellow brick road. Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. Follow the rainbow of the stream, follow the fellow who follows the dream. Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. What we're up to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is a wizard of Oz, if ever a wizard there was. If ever, oh, ever a wizard there was, the wizard of Oz is one because. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Now, whenever I see someone less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who isn't less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. And when someone needs a makeover, I simply have to take over. I know, I know exactly what they need. And even Though it's the toughest case I've yet to face Don't worry, I'm determined to succeed Follow my lead And yes, indeed, you will be popular Hey, you're gonna be popular I'll teach you the proper poise When you talk to boys Little ways who flirt and fuss I'll show you what shoes to wear How to fix your hair Everything that really counts to be popular I'll help you be popular You'll hang with the right cards You'll be good at sports Know the slang you've got to know So let's start Cause you've got an awfully long way to go Don't be fed up by my frank analysis Think of it as personality dialysis Well, ah, there's nothing that can suck you from becoming popular. Alar, there you go. La 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 la. We're gonna make you popular. When I see depressing creatures with unprepossessing features, I remind them on their own behalf to think of celebrated heads of state, especially great communicators. You're 
same right, right, right on my vocal cords. So I'm gonna just flush that before we do our last song of the night. Oh. Last song of the night. Oh my goodness, here we go. So I'm gonna do another thank you after this, but I'm gonna do a huge thank you to everyone right now. Thank you so much, everyone for being here for Broadway Happy Hour. It's so much fun being with all of you. I'm so glad that you could join me again. Here we go. This is where I could have really used a cane. You can still be with a wizard that you've worked and waited for. You can have all you've ever wanted. I know, but I don't want it. No. I can't want it
That concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.